we shouldn't be looking to see whether or not we have all the instruments we like or whether or not there are instruments we don't like that are used in the singing. We should use this time to sing together to the Lord. And one of the reasons why we love moments of doing a cappella in our singing together is because we actually get really to hear our voices and our voices alone. So that when we do so, it's a prayer of the saints rising up to the throne of God. And what a beautiful, beautiful uh, prayer. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. With this prayer in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. For those of you who are visiting us for the first time today, we are going through the book of Daniel. We have just finished the, what's called the first half of the book, the narrative section of the book of Daniel. And today we are beginning um, in the apocalyptic section of the book of Daniel. For those of you who are using a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 777. 777. If you're using a Bible of your own version uh, or of, of, of your own, we hope you'll find your, your passage somewhere in the Old Testament after the book of Ezekiel, after the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah and so forth, but before Hosea and before the small prophets. Well, let's listen to the God, to the Word of God, to this ancient Word for us this morning. Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the sea, the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, 
thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like the wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and ten thousand, ten thousand, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words a horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. 
His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. And friends, if Daniel was troubled and greatly disturbed by all this, and didn't know what sense to make of it, we need to ask the Spirit of God to enable us to understand the meaning of this dream. What is its significance? And what does the Lord want to speak to us through this dream that Daniel had? Would you join me in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to reveal Himself to us? Oh Lord, we ask in these moments that you might give us your Holy Spirit in, in fresh ways, in new measures, that we might understand at least a glimpse of what you aimed and hoped to communicate to your saints, to your people, through your prophet Daniel. Father, we pray that your presence would be among us, and we ask that you would speak to us in the name of Christ. We need your wisdom. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Friends, when I've shared with people um, about the fact that we're going through the book of Daniel and that we're going through the whole book of Daniel in our sermon series, one question that came up multiple times from multiple people was even chapters 7 through 12. We love Daniel, the first six chapters. The children love the first six chapters of Daniel. So, speaking from Daniel is great, but even the second half? As much as we love chapters 1 through 6, it seems we feel as much, if not more, intimidation about chapters 7 through 12. Why so? Well, at least there's a number of reasons I can point out. Um, the apocalyptic literature is filled with symbols. And these symbols are pretty hard to interpret. And uh, there are all kinds of interpretations that we could fall into. Um, there's at least two dangers, two dangers when it comes to interpreting the symbols of, um, of, of the book of, of Daniel and any apocalyptic literature. Two, two dangers of interpreting symbols. One is to look at every detail and try to find some significant spiritual interpretation in every small symbol presented in the book. That is an overly spiritualized reading of the apocalyptic literature. That's a dangerous path. There's another danger on the other side of looking at the apocalyptic literature with no spiritual meaning, uh, but only bizarre Stories with bizarre characters that are irrelevant for us. That we could really live life without worrying much about the apocalyptic literature of the Bible. That's also a dangerous extreme on the other side. Both extremes are, are dangerous. Yes, the apocalyptic literature is full of symbols, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand what God reveals to His people through this literature. Another difficulty in interpreting the apocalyptic literature is the danger, or the, not the danger, but the, the inclination some of us fall into in trying to speculate about historical dates and events. 
Uh, people often have read the apocalyptic literature to find out the date when the world will come to an end. Um, in 1988, there was a man who wrote a little brochure called 88 Reasons Why the Second Coming Will Be in 1988. And, uh, of course, it didn't happen. Um, other people, without trying to pin down actual dates, they may still look at the apocalyptic literature and try to find who are the historical characters that are leading up to, to the end. You know, there's a time when, when in, the, in the history of the church, people thought the uh, the, the, the Pope or the Roman Catholic Church might, be, might play some of that, one of those roles. And, and there's all kinds of, of speculations. But we should be cautious, very cautious, of, of making these rash and quick kind of speculations about the apocalyptic literature. Yet despite these difficulties and dangers, the sections, the apocalyptic sections of the Bible are very, very important. The book of Daniel, the book of Zechariah, parts of the Gospels include apocalyptic uh, images, and of course, the book of Revelation. Why should we, the people of God today, be interested to look carefully at the book of Daniel, at the apocalyptic literature? Well, let me give you at least two reasons. Two reasons why we should be interested to look at the apocalyptic literature and at the book of Daniel in particular. One, because they tell us not only what God has done in the past, the apocalyptic literature tells us what He will do in the future. God tells us what He will do in the future. But a second reason is that the apocalyptic literature invites us to look at our world from the perspective of another world. It invites us to look at our world from God's world. And once we get a glimpse of God's world and how He plans to bring all this to an end, once we get a sense of God's world and His perspective on world history, we're then invited to look back at our own experiences with a set of new eyes. Our present looks different when we get a sense of what's coming. Our, set, our present experiences will look different when we know how the story ends. So that's why we are called and invited to look at the apocalyptic literature. That's why Daniel chapter 7 provides for us a grand vision of the world history from the time of Babylon to the end of the world when God will establish His kingdom in its fullness. Friends, we need to remember that the book of Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12 don't simply speak about the end times. The book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, begins speaking about the present in which Daniel was living. And it's giving a picture of the present leading all the way to the end. That's why the apocalyptic literature is valuable for us here in the now. The first chapter is, uh, or chapter 7 is the first of the four apocalyptic visions. There are four visions in the rest of this book. But of these, chapter 7 is the most important. It actually gives us the most comprehensive view of human history. So much so that one commentator called chapter 7 the single most important chapter of the entire book of Daniel. So of all the fun stories we've read so far, children, of all the fun stories we've read, there's one more chapter that is even more important than the first six. It's chapter 7. So let's look at it. Um, 
it's going to be hard to really give you a nice, cute outline that fits well with, with this chapter. Uh, I tried. I'm going to give it to you. For those of you who like taking notes, I'm going to give you three headings. Um, but, but don't worry about it. We're just going to go through the chapter. Um, the first one is a different picture of reality. A different picture of reality. A second theme will be a different picture of final authority. And lastly, a different hope of eternity. A different hope of eternity. Let's look at how, this, how, how Daniel sees this dream and what he gets out of it. Um, a different picture of reality. In many ways, chapter 7, and by the way, let me say something else. I was so tempted this week as preparing for this message to, to, to fall in, in dealing with all the details of this chapter. And I found myself, if I had spent time in, in unpacking all the details of this chapter to satisfy your spiritual um, hunger for eschatology, for the things to come, um, we would stay here a, a few hours at least. Um, and we have only one sermon. So I'm going to really give a broad picture of chapter 7. And if you have questions about some of the details and why I think of certain connections, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service, okay? But if I don't answer all your all your questions, um, there's more we can talk about at the end of the service. So with that in mind, let's, let's jump into it. A different picture of reality. In many ways, chapter 7 must be read in light of the rest of the book of Daniel. You can't just read chapter 7 as if nothing has happened prior to Daniel 7. And uh, why is this important? Because when we remember the previous chapters of the book of Daniel, specifically Chapter 2, do you remember, that's the first vision God gives to a pagan king of a picture of, of world history from the present to the end? And do you remember the picture? The king dreams of this statue that was broken up in four parts, representing four kingdoms of the earth prior to God setting up his kingdom. Well, the same pattern is here in chapter 7. As a matter of fact, we should read chapter 7 in light of chapter 2. Just as the statue in chapter 2 gave a view of human history and of the kingdoms of men prior to God setting up His kingdom, so also chapter 7 does the same here. In both chapters, we see human history represented by four kingdoms. Now, of course, there are going to be more kingdoms out in human history, but that's not the point. The point is God so chooses to represent human history through four kingdoms. In chapter 2, the four kingdoms are represented as precious metals, starting off with gold, representing Babylon, the king of Babylon. But though, even though they start off with gold, as, as the, the materials go on, there's a, a gradual deterioration from gold to silver, to bronze, and finally, to iron mixed with clay. In chapter 7, the same four kingdoms are represented. But this time, through a different imagery. Not as precious metals, but as beasts. From God's perspective, human history looks different. To us, human beings, the kingdoms of the world 
look like something precious, something we would like to get our hands on, something we would love to own. But from God's perspective, they look like frightening beasts, animal-like creatures. And unlike in chapter 2 where the value of these kingdoms was deteriorating, in chapter 7, the threat of these kingdoms is growing. Same picture of world history, different perspectives from man or from God. Now, in most chapter, in both chapters, the most attention is given to the fourth kingdom, the one which will precede the establishment of the kingdom of God. Unlike chapter 2, chapter 7 uh, tells us not simply what will happen um, to the kingdoms of the earth, but also what will happen to the saints of the Most High God. Uh, chapter 2 hinted, if you remember, hinted at the reality that when the kingdom of God will be established, the kingdoms of the earth will be destroyed. There was a rock that fell from a mountain aided by no human hand. It crushed the stone, uh, the statue. It uh, completely dis uh, broke into pieces and the wind carried away so that the statue completely got dissolved. There was no trace of it. And instead, this kingdom that God will set up from, by this little stone end up growing to a big mountain that covered the whole earth. But what chapter 2 doesn't tell us is, well, what happens to the people of God who are caught in the middle of this conflict? The kingdoms of the earth will perish, they will be destroyed, but what happens to the people of God who are caught in the conflict, in the middle of it? And to this, chapter 7 of Daniel speaks. Chapter 7, it's almost as if he's putting his emphasis on the people of God who will be caught into this change, in the middle of the change of the kingdoms. In this sense, dear friends, let's look at chapter 7 as a message that is written to warn and encourage the saints about what is yet to come so that they may persevere and not be caught off guard. Chapter 7 is written to warn and to encourage the saints about what is yet to come so they may persevere and not be caught off guard as history of the world will unpack. Let's look more closely at the vision of chapter 7. Now, to have animals represent human kingdoms is not something new and not something foreign to us. Um, in the history of modern uh, society, even, even the, the, the scientific man thinks of his nations represented by animals. For instance, Britain is represented by the lion. The, 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 Russia is represented by the bear. Do you know what America is represented by? The eagle. See, even, even a modern man has no problem to think of nations represented by animals. But in Daniel, there's something else going on. These are not just the nice mascots that we have for our nations. The, the picture of animals that we get in Daniel is actually quite unusual. Uh, it has mix, each, each animal has mixture of elements that make them look weird if not terrifying, a lion with eagle's wings, a leopard 
with four wings and a monster with iron teeth and with ten horns. All of this is so different than the way God created the world. Remember Genesis? When God created every creature according to its kind? Here, what Daniel sees in, in, in this vision is a reality where the created world order is all mixed up. It's all chaotic. It's terrifying. And as unusual as these beasts appear, Daniel's attention is, is captured by what happens to the, the fourth beast with the ten horns. Look at verse 8. He says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. Three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like eyes of a man and a mouth like that spoke boastfully. What a scary picture. A little horn with eyes and a mouth speaking and speaking boastfully. Here's a point Daniel wants to say about this at this moment. He was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. In other words, even if the first three beasts were, were, were scary, when we get to see the fourth picture, it is a different thing altogether. It's, it, it stands in a class in and of itself. It's a different kind from the rest. Now, people try to identify which countries these four beasts represent. Um, scholars of the Old Testament and New Testament have often thought that um, we might refer to Babylon, uh, the Medo Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome. Others uh, would say, no, we can't really refer to Rome because they have a hard time seeing how Daniel could project the future with so many details and uh, yet do it before the events actually took place. So, people who don't believe in the fact that God inspired the scriptures and he knows the future from, uh, from the beginning. Um, they would actually say that this book was written not in the 6th century B.C., but was written in the 2nd century B.C., so the fourth kingdom cannot be Rome, because that would bring everything too close to the present. It really have to be the, Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo kingdom, the Persian kingdom, and, the Greece, and, the Gre and Greece as the last kingdom. And there's big debate about these. One of the interesting things is that all commentators agree that the first kingdom is indeed Babylon. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel in a few places call Nebuchadnezzar a lion and an eagle. So there's, very, there's some good hints that indeed the first kingdom is referring to Babylon, but then the rest, it's debated. But here's what I want to say. Even if, it's, even if it's Rome, we still miss the point of what this is talking about. The point is not simply to say, oh good, this is referring to past kingdoms that have already taken place from our perspective no, it's talking about a regime, the last regime, the last kingdom that will be present, that will act before God will set up his kingdom. And what, what is interesting about this is that this last regime is actually going to be even more ferocious in devastating the inhabitants of the earth, in being, bringing destruction upon earth itself. The, the fourth kingdom will pale in comparison with what the previous kingdoms have done against the earth. Daniel emphasizes that this final kingdom, whichever it is, will be unlike any other 
in its mass destruction. This is one reason why the attempts to pin down the fourth kingdom as being Greece or Rome or some other nation today is, is hard. That's not the point. The point is not to try to find which kingdom in history matches this picture. The point is to realize that Daniel's pic- painting a picture of world history that is degrading. It's not progressing. It's not progressing. This vision of world powers is aimed to scare us. It pictures kingdoms of the world not as friendly towards its inhabitants, not having their best interest in mind, but they're only to subdue them and to control them. World powers, dear friends, are bent to dominate and to devour whatever stands against them. We in the West have been desensitized, or actually have been um, made to believe that government is really there for you. And that's just a very modern phenomenon. For the past 19 centuries of this era, nobody believed that. Everybody knew where this is going. For a season, in God's grace, we have been called to live in a time when we actually believe that the government might do some good things for us. <laughs> Keep on believing. And pray that you will die before that dream is this. This destroyed. But that's not the way the Bible presents the powers behind world government. They're meant to destroy. There's much more that will be said about this fourth kingdom and the little horn um, and what he did. But But before we get too terrified, the picture changes. And this is where before Daniel's heart beats too hard, before our own eyes are too scared, Daniel gets another vision, another picture. It's a different picture, a final authority. This stark picture of world powers in Daniel's dream gets interrupted. It's as if somebody's pausing, putting the pause button, so that Daniel could look at something else. And that something else is starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and he, the Ancient of Days, took his seat. What a change in scenery. Thrones set up, the Ancient of Days sitting down, and look at how he's described. His clothing was white as snow, his hair white like wool, his throne flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. By the way, this means that he, was, he had a mobile throne. This was a picture of the fact that God's authority and his reign is dynamic. He's not just static somewhere and stuck. His throne has wheels. And they're ablaze. He's moving. He's active. And, and there was fire flowing from beneath his throne. And even though he's the ancient of days, he's followed by thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. By the way, in the ancient world, 10,000 was the highest number they could think of. So when he says 10,000 times 10,000, that means it's the biggest picture of, of people, of numbers I can come up with. For those of you who are, who are a little surprised by this phrase, the ancient of days, um, in our youth-obsessed culture, um, this phrase might not feel very appealing. Ancient of days, um, who would find any relevancy in old experience? Who likes 
people who are so old they can't move well and they need to use a walker and they are frail. And in our youth-obsessed culture, we have a hard time thinking of God as the ancient of days. But we should think about this picture through the eyes of ancient culture where old age and white hair were viewed as a great blessing, as a sign of dignity, as a sign of stability, as a sign that things were well. Things have changed these days, haven't they? We see a church where there's gray hair, and some people think there's no future in that church. How sad. How sad. I was so encouraged a few weeks ago when a, a visiting member came and said what, and asked him what, what they liked about our church, and one of the things they said, I like the diversity of age. I like the fact that there's old saints around younger saints as well. Praise God. Well, God is used here, is, is described through this picture of the ancient of days. He is very relevant. And there's a huge crowd following him. I know it's hard to believe, but yes, there's a huge crowd following the ancient of days because he has final authority. 10,000 upon 10,000, that's a huge, huge picture. Friends, a picture here is that he has authority. He has the highest authority among the thrones. He sits down the first, not because he's too old and he can't um, stand up because he had the knee replacement surgery. The reason why he's the first to sit down is because the one in the highest authority was the first one who had to sit down. That's why when, the, when Daniel sees this picture of, of thrones and he sees the ancient of days being the first one sitting down, that means because he is the first, he's the first one who has the right to do so. But then look at what this happens, uh, what happens in this picture. Um, the, the, the court is convened. And he has authority to get the books, to get the books open. This is a picture of the throne room of God. And when you take this picture and put it on the backdrop of the four beasts, what you get is that the Ancient of Days is neither surprised nor panicked, by the four beasts. He's not going to war. He's not taking his chariot and riding against him. He just sits down and opens the books. There's no sense of, of trying to strategize a, a war strategy against these four beasts. He's just sitting down because he has authority over them. Look at verse 11. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into blazing fire. And the other three beasts, he deprives them of all their authority. This is a critical detail for the rest of the book of Daniel and for the rest of human history. Friends, we could stop at this picture and know where human history will end. This picture is enough to tell us God has the authority and the power to destroy even the fourth beast, which was unlike any of the previous three. And he has the ability to reclaim all power from them back to himself. Don't forget this detail. Don't forget this detail. And then there's a third image that Daniel sees, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Why is his import appearance important? Not only was he led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, but look at verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. This is what the Ancient of Days took from the four beasts, 
their authority and power is now transferred to this divine being. And unlike the four beasts who are scary even to look at, this divine being looks like a son of man. As there's great debate among theologians of what this character in Daniel's dream represents. Is he an actual person or a representative of Israel or a representative of the remnant of Israel or a representative of the people of God? One of the reasons why theologians would uh, doubt that it refers to the actual person is in verse 18 and verse 27, where we are told that the saints will receive the kingdom. So many conclude that the meaning of the phrase, one like a son of man, must refer not to an actual person, but to a collective community. But this interpretation is very problematic. Uh, first of all, look at verse 14. Let me just give you one huge hint, and it's an important hint. Verse 14, we were told that whoever, whoever he was, all peoples, nations, and men of every language will worship him. This is important. If the phrase refers to the saints of the Most High, we run into the problem of having worship attributed to the people of the Most High God. And we know from Scripture that God will never share His glory with anybody else, not even with His angels, let alone with His people. In the book of Revelation, when John wants to fall down and worship one of the angels, the angel rebukes him saying, you, you shouldn't fall down to me, you shouldn't worship me, because only God, only a divine being, is worthy of worship. And what makes this picture in Daniel 7 important is that he will receive the worship of all the nations. But what's amazing in this, in this picture is that Daniel, he's not surprised to see someone receive the worship. The surprise is to see someone like a man receive this worship. This was unusual. This was different. Now, no wonder that when Daniel saw this, he was confused and, and was not sure what it meant. A divine person, yet looking like a man, and he will receive all worship of all nations. How could someone looking like a man receive such an honor? Now, remember, dear friends, Daniel sees all this before the Incarnation. The mystery of the Incarnation was a faraway experience. It was too, too dark for them to, to understand. So, the, at this time, he's not able to make sense of it. Thus, these thoughts disturb him. So, he asks for the meaning of this vision. And the answer he gets is verses 17 and 18. Amazingly, the angel, when he's interpreting for Daniel the meaning of this vision, he doesn't say anything about the identity of the Son of Man. All he says is that the kingdom will be given to the saints of the Most High God and they will possess it forever and ever and ever. The authority, glory, and sovereign power is given to the divine being that looks like a man, but the beneficiaries of his kingdom will be the saints of the Most High God. My friend, what's amazing is when Jesus comes on the scene of human history and he was arrested and examined by the high priests to see if he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, here's what Jesus responded. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
even though the angel did not say much to Daniel about the identity of the one like a son of man, Jesus, right before the cross, in the most bold terms, attributes to himself the image that Daniel saw. So even though Daniel, in the identity of this divine image that comes on the clouds, even though for Daniel this image is enigmatic, it becomes clear once we get to Christ and hear what Christ claimed about himself. This means that in the words of of um, C.S. Lewis, for Jesus to claim such things about himself makes him either a lunatic or a liar or he is truly what he claimed to be. Because only Jesus claimed to fulfill the role of this man whom Daniel saw in his vision. Friends, you can't approach Jesus as simply being a leader who taught us how to live a good life and how to love one another and how to be good citizens in society and how to live a moral life. To stop only at these answers is to have a wrong view of what Jesus claimed about himself. He is the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and will be coming on the clouds of heaven. It is this view of Jesus that we're called to believe. And if we choose to reject him or ignore him, we are turning away from this identity of Jesus. What a timely answer Jesus gave to the chief priests as they were sinning in judgment against him. The one they are about to crucify claimed to be the one Daniel saw in his dream, but they refused him. Friend, what about you this morning? Jesus claims to be the one Daniel saw. Do you know him? Do you believe him? Have you received him? Do you know the hope of the gospel he came to bring? Friends, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. The one who received the highest authority, the one who was on the throne, the one who received all the glory and majestic power is sitting in front of his cross on our behalf, on your behalf, so that he might rescue rebels and bring them into his kingdom so that they might become saints of the Most High God. Friends, this is a hope of the gospel that when we turn to Christ, This is what He does for us. He transfers us into the kingdom of His Son. Dear friends, elsewhere Jesus said that He, as a Son of Man, came to give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, if you believe this truth and Jesus' own claims about Himself, what He has done for us, you too can be made part of His kingdom. And if you have never done this or you don't know what to do about this Jesus and how to respond to him, not just as a good teacher, but as your Savior, as the one who has the highest authority, the highest sovereign power, the highest glory, if you don't know how to relate to him, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. Friends, God has prepared this kingdom for the saints of the Most High God who respond to this man who came on the clouds. To belong to Christ means that you get into the kingdom that God promised to His Son. And the Holy Spirit creates in us a new birth. We not only become a partakers of His nature, but we part- become partakers of His inheritance. That's why, dear friends, for the rest of us who live on earth, when we look forward to the moment of death as a moment of receiving 
that inheritance. That's why Christians, when they face death, they face it with a sense of eagerness. Even though it's mixed with, with feelings of sorrow for separation, we look towards that moment as the moment when we will receive the kingdom from our Father, from the ancient of days. That's why the book of Daniel gives us a different hope for eternity, even in the midst of this picture of beasts coming against the earth. After Daniel hears the, expl the explanation from the angel, there's something else he's interested in. He wants to know more about the fourth beast. He wants to know more about the ten horns. He wants to know more about the little horn that spoke boastfully. There's so much more we can talk about it. And I'm not going to have time to talk about it today. But I want to leave you with a few anchors in which you can look at the rest of Daniel. One of the things that surprised Daniel is to see that even though this picture of the ancient of days, of the throne sitting, of receiving judgment and of, of executing judgment against the four beasts, one of the details that Daniel sees in verse 21 is that this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. This is a surprise. This is a shock. This is something we're not ready to receive. What do you mean? We just saw a picture of God's throne room, of His authority to destroy the beast, even the fourth beast, and yet He was given authority over the saints, and the saints were given to Him for time, times, and half a time, and defeating them? Friends, no wonder that at the end, Daniel's troubled, deeply troubled in his thoughts, and his face turned pale. This meant that as hard as the exile was, something worse was still to come. The first beast, which was the representative of Babylon, was easy in comparison with the fourth beast. And what this fourth beast will cause upon the saints, not of just of Israel, but of the whole earth. It's hard to hear us, for us to hear this news. And we may ask, how come, God? How come? But this is the point. This is the point Daniel is given. In the midst of a sovereign one having authority over the fourth be four beasts, yet there is suffering. And this is what God wants to communicate to Daniel. And, and if we have a hard time getting this, we must remember Jesus. When does Jesus identify himself with a vi vision of Daniel 7? It's right before the cross. It's right as he was to be executed. In the eyes of the world, the cross was the defeat of Jesus. In the eyes of the disciples, the cross was the end of Jesus. In the eyes of Pilate, in the eyes of the chief priest, they thought they were done with Jesus. It's this pattern that Daniel gets that will be experienced by the saints of the Most High God. There will come a time when the world will think they have defeated us. There will come a time and there will be experiences when the saints will feel like they have been defeated, humanly speaking. But the point is, it's only for time times and a half. And whatever that phrase means, and there's great dialogue about it, here's the point. When you put that phrase in comparison with the assurance that God gave Daniel that the kingdom will be given to the saints of the most high God and they will reign with him forever and ever, 
you cannot miss the point that whatever time that defeat will be, it will be very, very short. Friends, why is this a big deal for Daniel? And here's what I want to leave you with this picture. There's a very important verse that starts off the entire chapter 7. Would you look at it? It's a key to everything that has been said so far. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. When does this dream happen? It happens sometime after chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is now gone. And it definitely happens sometime before chapter 5, when Belshazzar is gone. It happens somewhere between chapters 4 and 5. But definitely before chapter 6. You know why this chapter is so significant for Daniel and for us? Daniel had this dream before the events of chapter 6 when he was threatened by the beasts. Daniel knows what authority and power his God has from this dream. He knows that the world will only bring destruction by the four beasts. There's only threat for the people of God as they move forward into history. He heard this story. He saw this dream. And now Daniel sits in chapter 6, threatened by some lions. By some lions. When the lion was the first of the four, not even the worst. You understand why Daniel has the ability to have courage to rather face the lion's den than stop praying? Because he knows where this is going. And he knows that he should be ready to experience some defeat if God so chooses to let him go through it. But that's not the end of it. Chapter 7 is a huge encouragement for saints today who are facing all kinds of pressures and trials. It's not just for the end of times. It's for today that might prepare us to be ready to, to face a time of being defeated, face a time when, when the fourth beast might have its way with us. Friends, God is on the throne. And, his bee, and the beasts that threaten us are under His control. How amazing that Paul, in, in the book of in Thessalonians, he says that, God will destroy the man of lawlessness by the breath of his mouth. How amazing. And how amazing that in, in Daniel, the, he saw these beasts coming from the sea, which was another picture of chaos, another picture of, of how the world looked like before God brought order to it. Remember in, in the book of Revelation, when the new creation is presented to us, one of the interesting details in chapter 21 of Revelation is that not only there will be a new heaven and a new earth, but John says something very powerful, and the sea was no longer there. Because when God will create the new earth and the new heavens, there will be no more source 
of chaos. No more source of enmity towards God. God will bring all things under his authority. And he will give his kingdom to his son, Jesus Christ, in whom, whom he loves. And because we are called to be in him by the gospel, because by the gospel we are made partakers of the body of Christ, we too receive the promise of his kingdom. Friends, what an encouragement Daniel 7 is for us, that no matter what comes our way, we can be ready to persevere and stay strong to the end. I pray that this would be the kind of joy, the kind of readiness that the people of God here at Parkers Baptist Church will have as they face anything, as they face as we get closer and closer to the end times. May God be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that your word gives to us in the book of Daniel, that no matter what happens to us, even though there might be times when the kingdoms of this earth might have their way against us, Lord, we rest in the promise and picture of your sovereign power that in the end, you rule. In the end, you have authority. And in the end, you will give this authority, this glory, this sovereign power to your Son. Father, we rejoice in being part of your Son, in being members of the body of Christ. And until the day you come back on the clouds, we pray that we may stand faithful until the very end. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Again, I invite you to stand with us as we worship God. Uh, we just heard a great encouragement by Pastor Samuel that Jesus is on the throne, that our final hope uh, comes uh, in his appearing and in his authority. So we get to uh, celebrate this together, uh, encourage you to, to sing this with us with uh, joyful and thankful hearts and the hope that we have.